welcome back to Estranged. I really enjoyed this conversation uh, with Nina Power. Nina is an author, philosopher, critic and translator. Her works include the 2009 book uh, One Dimensional Woman with Zero Books and uh, translations of uh, writings by Badiou, including on Beckett. Um, she recently left her post as an academic at Roehampton University. So uh, we should be expecting more kind of like public communication and writings from Nina, which is very exciting. Um, and she has a book coming out um, later this year called What Do Men Want? Um, and we talked a little bit about that book today, as well as the Pasolini 1968 film, Theorem. I uh, managed to press record, not at the very beginning of our conversation, and then Nina received a parcel of birdseed to feed the birds outside her window. So uh, we kind of like start off mid-conversation, uh, but I hope you enjoy it. Uh, do, of course, feel free to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, and do share uh, the podcast with anybody you think who might be interested. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I ordered some birdseed to feed the birds on my balcony. Fancy. <laughs> nice. Um, no, I, I have like, it seems like I'm like a really unanimal person. I was watching this film, Pieces of a Woman, the other day. Have you seen it? It's on, it's on Netflix. Um, um, no. Yeah, it's quite interesting. But anyway, Shia LaBeouf is having this affair with um, the woman he's married to, his cousin or partner with. And um, the like flirtatious line is like, are you a dog person or a cat person? And I'm like, well, how about neither? I'm scared of dogs. I don't like cats. I used Marissa. to be scared of dogs and now Did I'm you? yeah 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 Do I, you? yeah I went out with Alfie and his family had lots of dogs and so I got used to you got used to them calling having naps with them and things like this and I found them oh. so no. yeah yeah maybe it's an exposure thing I dog sat for some friends um in the states when they they took on this stray and they had to like you know couldn't have space for both dogs and their dog was like it didn't shed it was like didn't bark it was so lovely and it actually came into my bed at night so I was like I could like dogs if dogs were like this I think I had this memory of being like a toddler and going on a walk with like a babysitter and she had a dog and then the dog like started to charge off and I was like dragged along the pavement by the dog mm. <laughs> so I think that's what I'm like afraid of but um you know we actually just to go back to what we were talking about um this idea of like uh, you know equality and what equality is and difference being different but equal at the same time is Tom McGowan's written a lot about this and I think he talks about it in Capitalism and Desire about how within the um, economic system that we're within at the moment that there is an element of um, wanting to ideologically be equal or equalized in all sense so that we are all just like um, subjects of capital in yeah. a way um, yeah well, exactly. I mean, you know, if you're equally lacking, which is to say, you know, everyone has to sell their labour power. Exactly. And I mean, it's a very, you know, reductive kind of equality. And, and obviously Marx and Engels talk about this in the Communist Manifesto, like, you know, what capitalism does as it kind of spreads across the globe is also kind of eliminate tradition and superstition and, mm -hmm. you know, anything that's kind of folk specific in a certain yeah. way. It, you know, there's a, a kind of equality in you know, in exchange, right? Exchange, mm -hmm. everything down to exchangeability, right? Including human beings. Um, so yeah, and then, and I think when we're talking about difference, difference isn't the same as identity. You know, mm -hmm. it's, everyone is different from everyone else, right? And Badu talks about this too, like difference is simply what there is. And we're also different from ourselves. Like we're, we're not the same person. What's what, what links me at 42 to me at four, you know? none of my interests are the same you know I'm not I can't I don't think the same way it's you know on some level I'm the same person right but in what mm -hmm. sense am I you know mm -hmm. the same as I as, as I was in what sense am I like you or like anyone else you know so actually Badu says equality is rare mm -hmm. <laughs> in a, in yeah no absolutely he means it you know whereas I think identity 
you know, it's, it's almost it's a kind of symptom perhaps of this um, feeling swallowed up in sameness, you know, not wanting to be um, unknown or ignored. You know, sometimes it's a kind of, you know, almost like that teenage idea of wanting to be um, recognised or to be different in some mm-hmm. ways um, against the backdrop of a backdrop of the sort of, you know, nihilist insignificance. You know, who I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It's funny. You know, like the, the architecture of the age, you know, speaks to certain value. You know, there's a, a certain thing of like previous epochs where the wealthy, at least there was something of, you know, noblesse oblige or like creating yeah. a beautiful, you know, something that was lovely to look at or that, you know, had uh, at periods where, you know, there was worse sanitation, you know, had, you know, airy open spaces and stuff. And like the now, <laughs> like the wealthy architecture is like, a concrete bo- blob that's like white walls and glasses is nothing to it. Um, I didn't. There was a there was a video of like I saw Kim Kardashian's house in Calabasas in California, and it's like that. You know, there's there's nothing in it. There's no clutter. It's just like it looks in a way like what you might imagine like a '60s mental hospital to look like. <laughs> but like the thing is, it's just. Um, but yeah, that in response to this like blandifying um, and a form of egalitarian like just nothingness that yeah the clinging on to these signifiers but it is interesting though that when um you know this move towards a focus on identity and as an x y and z person that the move can be to cling on to like signifiers that mean something within the culture so you're kind of not it's all about you who you are it's like oh as a woman as a able body you know these kind of things where again they there's a sort of like a you 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 it's like I don't know it's like uh Pokemon Go you you can create an identity for yourself by collecting all of these like essentially like meaningless blandified nothing but the fact that you have to keep accruing them or that there's like 70 gender identities is because like they just don't they don't really get to the heart of the fact that the blandifying of capital is more on a kind of like existential metaphysical level mm-hmm. yeah I mean the point about the the sovereigns not doing their job I mean from a battalion point of view you know the the problem is not lack in a way it's excess you know mm-hmm. so what the ruling class should really be doing is kind of setting fire as the KLF did to millions of pounds or you know <laughs> or creating massive spe- uh, spectacles right to kind of um uh, deal with the excess mm-hmm. right that the, the and um, that kind of uh, really uh, raucous behaviour that we, we mm-hmm. should expect from our monarchs and our ruling classes has, has yeah, been turned into, uh, a, you know, a lack of their desire to do this. You know, they kind of yeah. hide away and hide their money, you know, whereas I think we should be having like sort of, I don't know, gigantic festivals and bonfires. Absolutely. Things. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That like value is created by yeah sacrifice and and uh, yeah, as you say, like lack rather than you know the housing crisis was prime example. When there's too much, things become valueless. <laughs> yeah, that's the real crisis. But I always say I find it really funny, like the British royal family, like the last year, and I really feel like it was bourgeois capitalist values, Meghan Markle and Princess Harry, against like old, old you know monarchical values. Um, although old, maybe like twentieth century post how it transformed within the world the world wars you know the duty and all this kind of stuff um but yeah that the 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 new i mean the princesses now are sort of girl bosses you know mm. <laughs> like have a have a, a podcast or netflix deals or whatever and it's about you know striving and contributing and working like everybody else very very strange we live in interesting times uh, to say the least anyway so today we're going to talk about um a movie by pasolini 1968 theorem i'd never watched this film and nina you say it's one of your favorites yeah um it's really interesting we're going to talk about this idea of subjective destitution but i guess i mean um we were talking a little bit in advance of the conversation about what makes it unusual and also compelling is that um instead of providing um an answer or a resolution um nothing changes and it's immensely unsatisfying and also strange so that the title of the film is a you know very scientific mathematical idea 
which maybe makes us think that this is going to be, you know, A plus B equals C, but actually it's sort of A plus B equals <laughs> I don't know, you know, there's um, not only no, well, there is a form of change, but it's, it's, uh, it's not a change, it's a change in form, but not a change in function, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a very, very interesting film, psychoanalytically, in terms of, of the idea of the encounter, in particular, and I think it really challenges the idea that there is a kind of um, desire that can be revealed in a certain sense so it, again this kind of question of identity so there's a kind of relatively um, you know indeterminate bourgeois family Italian family and they're visited by this mysterious guest who's played by Terence Stamp who's very he's in his late 20s an incredibly beautiful um, almost religious figure um, in his appearance and he's kind of used by Pasolini in this in this way and Pasolini is in general obsessed with the face you know he's obsessed with physiognomy and you know he thinks that capitalism he talks about anthropological genocide elsewhere the idea that capitalism is eroding people's faces it's kind of destroying everything about humanity in the name of this kind of homogeneity and he's very very kind of um you know, obsessed with this idea in a way. And he, he writes a very controversial poem about May 68 and the police officers. And he says that the police officers in a way have more authentic faces than the students. Um, you know, Pasolini is someone who's dealing with questions of Catholicism, of communism, of capitalism, and those three things all together in some way. And theorem comes out it's made around the time of May 68. So all of these things are kind of happening um, in Europe, um, in, you know, in the kind of revolts. And this bourgeois family are visited. They get a telegram uh, delivered by a kind of angelic messenger who's played by um, the, the man that Pasolini loves. Um, and it just says someone's arriving, like the guest is coming. And so Terence Stamp arrives and proceeds to have kind of ambiguous and obscure encounters with each of the family members. And they're sexual to some degree, but they're not all straightforwardly, uh, you know, simple idea of sexual liberation, right? It's not a film that you can directly map onto a kind of repressive hypothesis or something like this. Mm -hmm. Something of, so each of the family member, the, the father, the mother, the, the son and the daughter and, and the maid as well, have an encounter with, with the Terence Stamp figure who really doesn't speak, doesn't particularly say anything. And they're all transformed one way or another. So the bourgeois father gives up his factory. He hands over the factory to his workers. The, the mother becomes, um, interested in anonymous sexual pickups. She, she says, you know, my, my life is meaningless. And then she sort of proceeds to behave almost as a kind of uh, a gay man in a certain way, just sort of randomly driving around picking up young men and having sex with them outside the church. And Pasolini was particularly keen on outdoor sex. <laughs> and, uh, and then the son who's in other respects, quite normy, you know, is a kind of sort of popular bourgeois son who's previously talking about sports and hanging out with his male friends, suddenly becomes obsessed with becoming an artist. He reads this book of Francis Bacon, about Francis Bacon with the visitor, with the Terence Stamp guest, and then kind of moves out and becomes kind of possessed by, the, by a creative spirit and generates these theories about art in these paintings, um, using lots of blue paint in particular, splashing them around. And, and the daughter, again, who's quite a sort of, you know, normie, sociable, you know, bourgeois daughter, and she becomes catatonic, she becomes absolutely rigid. She enters into a kind of um, absolutely motionless state and is kind of carted away, perhaps um, unable to deal with uh, the transformation of her desire, you know, between her father and this this man, you know, she's kind of on the cusp of a this switch over. It doesn't quite kind of resolve itself. So 
and the maid very interestingly attempts suicide in one of the early scenes um, after her encounter with the guest and is rescued by the guest you know who's, who's in many ways very kindly he seems to be able to he seems to be responding to um an unarticulated desire on the part of all of these mm-hmm. things you know it's a very uh, sort of beneficent angelic figure um and the maid returns back to her village and becomes something of a religious figure who sits she sits and eats nettle soup and um, eventually kind of levitates above the village and uh, cures um, various sicknesses of the children and ultimately is kind of buried in a sort of pool of her own tears as a, a mother and you know very elderly woman they go to a kind of building site and there's a hammer and sickle on one of the buildings and she's kind of almost not not exactly martyred she doesn't die she's not there to die she says but to be kind of you know her tears are transforming let's say something of this strange new communist catholic you know capitalist italy Mm -hmm. and and i think what i really really like about this film apart from a sort of game you can play which is to say like which character are you like who do you identify with most i'll ask you that question (laughs) and uh but to 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 think about it not in terms then of this kind of true desire it's not that the Mm -hmm. game you know tells or triggers this um you know unleashing of what these this these members of the bourgeois family really want Mm -hmm. but rather you know it's about the kind of um unknowability of desire so that Mm -hmm. even if you you know, you change your life, even if you say, okay, well, this wasn't working, you know, the bourgeois father, can can he really stop being bourgeois, right? Like he gives yeah. up his, his factory to, to the workers, but is he still a, you know, is he still bourgeois, right? Is is to mm-hmm. be bourgeois, is it an identity in some kind of um, intransigent way, or is it, you know, a more structural um, location? Um, who is he when, um, when he is no longer the, the factory owner? And the final scene is him kind of screaming naked in a in a desert. Um, yeah, and- absolutely. It's it's so interesting because I think um, to to quote Tom Bengard again, you know, he talks a lot about like the the right wing deviation of the left, which is sort of like so. You know, we look at psychoanalysis and maybe like a capitalist interpretation of therapy is you go to therapy you have an encounter with this person who can read your unconscious desires better than you can. You discover what your desires are and you become happier and more comfortable in the world because now you've found your true self. Whereas actually it's just, you know, in that kind of Hegelian sense, like the contradiction can just kind of get a bit deeper, you know? So it just, it just takes a different form. So, so as you say, they, they all have these encounters something happens. I mean, in a way, perhaps we could say like a, a contradiction has deepened or something, but that they're, no, they're none the wiser to what would make them, you know, happy or um, doers or uh, productive or whatever. But it's also, you know, uh, Todd talks a lot about his his reading of um, where Marx, we could say, is this sort of like becomes un-Marxist and almost like a right-wing deviation where it's this, you know, projection of... Um, you know, this, this ideology of promise that as long as, you know, this change happens, then we'll get to this better place. But almost like part of the problem with a lot of discourse at the moment is this, this promise that as long as, you know, you adopt this identity or as long as we do this, it'll all be better, better, better. But, it, you know, the, the contradiction is still there. And so it's still caught up with this within this kind of like capitalist idea. And so it just is really interesting that like it seems the film seems like really hyper real and um mystical in some ways and almost like a fairy tale especially with the witch but actually it's more it's more real than a hollywood movie that involves change and something you know becoming better or finding yourself in some way yeah i mean i think the the reason why i wanted to maybe use this phrase subjective destitution you know and and also in relation to the sort of analytic encounter as you say it's um you know it's perhaps it's never going to be a kind of realization of what it is you really want, but perhaps a <laughs> yeah, a deeper understanding that perhaps you didn't want any of the things that yeah. you wanted, or or even the things that you thought you might want after you mm-hmm. worked out what it was you didn't want. You know, so I think the the question of desire 
you know just gets kind of transmuted and it's it's there's there is no kind of positive resolution and but something in the encounter this kind of um voiding situation mm -hmm. where the all of the characters in a way are forced to confront something that they can't necessarily articulate they become you know in some cases sort of sexual objects momentarily or even though it's their desire that kind of is drawing them to this mysterious guest and you know but their desire yeah is is a kind of um almost like an evacuation it's not a positive um idea and yeah. so this idea of what it means to kind of de destitute yourself of your own subjectivity I mean, it's also kind of a philosophical question as well you know I mean right back to Socrates and you know the aporia the idea of leading someone down a pathless path that you kind of you destroy all of those certainties but you don't necessarily replace them with uh, with anything at all um, but rather something of that experience um, permits a different relation to the nothing to the void absolutely yeah you know and and I think when we're talking about identity and this kind of culture of almost like a desperate clinging on to a word or a term or a or a you know sort of group belonging um you know I think it almost reveals the the inability really to confront the sort of nothingness of, of <laughs> yeah absolutely who everyone is in a way yeah absolutely you know, I mean, Nietzsche talks about the fact that we knowers don't know who we are like we don't yeah. have any idea you know. Yeah, absolutely. Do you? I really like that idea, as you say, that replacement idea. I think Jack Lacan talked. You know, one of his quotes to students in '68 was like, um, "You know, ce à quoi vous aspirez, un, un maître vous l'aurez." You know, yeah. like you're, what you're hoping for is a, a master, and you will have one. Okay, you know, so it's just again, you know, when when you know, there's like the revolution or whatever. It's not. It's not about confronting. And I think this is. You know, it's always tricky when you talk about like class issues today and stuff which obviously like I think any um political economy has a primary contradiction I think obviously that's the one of our era but at the same time it's like unless it's done with this like oh you know essentially we live in a void we are the void ourselves you know and being able to confront that in that kind of like the cure being ordinary unhappiness like being able to sit with that you know, it, it can be weaponized and then just like replaced with something new in a way of like avoiding that void. And, it, you know, I think it's absolutely true. There's um, it's a slightly controversial figure who has been banned from Twitter many times, although she's not controversial at all, but I think it's like, well, she's been banned a gazillion times. And I'm sure would agree with this, um, that, you know, when it's at 68 being like a, a cultural revolution in a sense and almost expanding, you know, the realm of what, what is within... Um, the scope of capital essentially um yeah it's uh, 68 i think is like such an interesting um an interesting moment and that yeah the the old masters were replaced with something new um that, that could look that can look uh very um you know more liberal and free and whatever but the freedom the lack of freedom is just pushed further down you know um, and I think we're kind of facing a similar moment at the moment with all the tech stuff that, you know, we, we're free to have UBI, we're free to be self-employed. But like, obviously, it's just, you know, the, the, you know less freedom at the same time. Um, who, who do you identify most with? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, I was going to just say something about repressive. Oh, yeah, go for it, go for it. But, um, yeah. you know, like, obviously, Marcuse and, you know, many of these other people, you know, it's, it's very obvious that these, you know, if someone's trying to sell you freedom... Uh, one should be very, very wary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, but yeah, no, I um, I suppose I identify most with the maid, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, actually. Yeah. I think probably women over a certain age would probably identify mostly with the, with the maid rather than the yeah. Or the mother, actually. The mother is a bachelor, yeah. you know, paradoxically quite... Um, you know, masculine character anyway. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, the, the maid permits a certain relation to self-abnegation, you know, I think. You know, in the, no, it's interesting. I, I find the daughter quite an interesting character as well. There's something about the maid and her hair turning green and like floating in the sky that I feel like, you know. Um, 
is compelling, but the daughter going to this catatonic state and, um, you know, one, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of, um, um, you know, the maladies of certain ages. And, I, you know, I think that Freud emerged because of capitalism, you know, that, that Freud, the reason why the unconscious was discovered was because of the maladies of the age. And um, there was a documentary, apparently, apparently it was like, I don't know if this is true, like really um, heavily narrativized and not really, like not really that accurate, but about children in um, immigrants from certain areas of the world in Sweden who um, in this state of unknowing of whether their parents were going to be able to stay in Sweden or not, or they're going to be sent back to their country of origin. They turned into, they like essentially went to sleep and there was nothing, no other physical symptoms or, you know, issues other than they basically their just bodies gave up and they went to sleep. And there's also sort of a thing of, um, you know, chronic fatigue and things like that. I mean, I think there's like medical basis, basis for like everything, but that there are definitely like maladies of the age. And I think there is something about this like catatonic, um, you know, that, that when, when everything is removed, all these sort of like cultural traditions or, you know, things within the symbolic that kind of keep you feeling like you're within the world, that you can end up feeling so uncertain that you just, you know, I did, it's a really, I can't remember the name of the documentary. It's a short documentary. I think it might've like been Oscar nominated a couple of years ago, but it was just really interesting about these children that just, the, the body just sort of gave up. Mm -hmm. um, and there is something about unknowing, you know, and uncertainty because obviously, you know, um, I think within psychoanalysis, this idea of, uh, you know, the Lacanian idea of like, uh, do not give ground in terms of your desire. You know, you both, don't let it uh, don't let your desire um pass you by also don't give up on your desire you know you still have to be a desire desire is really all you have but also in order to have desire you still have to have the sort of like game between an object you're going after and you know the, the desire to pursue it so sometimes there, you know there are these arbitrary um signifiers or arbitrary things that you know we orient ourselves around and without that the sort of uncertainty just leads to nothingness sort of I don't know, like a, a depression or, um, yeah, you, you kind of, in order to, all there is essentially maybe is desire. And in order to be able to have desire, you have to kind of like have something, you know, some investment in the world. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting thing the, the, that she sort of is so destitute when this guy leaves that it's a sort of retreating into, into sleep. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you could see it in some ways as a form of resistance, you know, it's a kind of last bastion of, um, you know, re the refusal to be productive. Yeah. <laughs> a certain way, there's obviously, you know, the Crary book from a few years ago, or 24-7, you know, where, you know, kind of discusses the kind of colonisation of sleep and dream, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a kind of totally sort of permeated age. Um, you know, I mean, it, at the same time, kind of, yeah depression as a kind of withdrawal I mean you know that what Nietzsche says about like you'd rather will nothingness than not will at all like it's always yeah you know it, it is impossible not to desire even if what you desire is is um is nothing right yeah you desire yeah. annihilation you know and the same will go for Spinoza when Spinoza talks about suicide you know suicide never comes from within the person it's always from outside you know, it's a matter yeah. of being overwhelmed by outside forces because it's the nature of our canatus, of our being, to strive. So yeah. even where our desire is kind of, you know, totally, um, you know, muted and mm -hmm. diminished, you know, the will is still there or the, you know, striving still persists, you know. And then obviously, when you think about um, Buddhism and Nietzsche talks about European Buddhism, when he talks mm -hmm. about nihilism, you know, it's it's um, the attempt to sort of um, escape desire, you know, to yeah. escape samsara, to, you know, I mean, how how is this possible? I mean, as long as you're alive, you are, you know, desiring even if you don't know how. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a, like, to be human is to be a speaking subject and so to be divided and therefore to desire. And like, yeah, this sort of like, overcoming desire you mean you're just becoming a vegetable essentially it's interesting like this this desiring nothing obviously like anorexia is kind of an example of yeah. this you're kind of literally eating nothing and 
um, when I was at university, it was a really, really, um, and I think, you know, the way, you know, we talked a little bit before about um, the hyper competitiveness of education and the, um, <laughs> there was a guy that wrote a book about this last year about like the capitalization on childhood you know you start training for tests when you're five and you know now students paying forty thousand pounds a year in the uk to go to university but you better get that first you know and um so the university was up was 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 really really intense and obviously it was rife with eating disorders as it would be um and also you know chronic fatigue <laughs> which i think you know as you say there's a certain point where you just um but also this idea of desire, because I think sometimes in like a more like layman's interpretation, it might be like, well, you don't desire that and you don't want to be there. So you want to do something else. But it's it's not even like as, as identifiable as like knowing what you desire, but like. A, yeah, that like, I guess you can desire infinite things and yeah, arbitrarily within the system, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to tick certain box, boxes to get as to a certain place, quote unquote, within society. But it's not like there's a resolution that like oh, I discovered from my symptom of being chronically fatigued that I didn't want to study maths anymore. And so, you know, um, obviously that, you know, there's an element of truth to that, but th th there's no, there's no like ultimate you or ultimate desire that is you that will, that you can evade this sense of destitution. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, I'm very interested in like, yeah, this, this idea of the encounter that kind of tells you nothing almost, <laughs> but tells yeah. you something different, um, or at least permits a different relation to your own desire, if not, you know, a positive one. And I, I suppose I'm very interested in this idea of failure. I think that there's, you know, very little room for a kind of positive failure. Mm -hmm. like one of the examples you give, this kind of very pressurised culture and all of these forms of self-abnegation and um trying to sort of minimize oneself and um you know in a way try to trying to avoid embracing um passion and desire and you know to try to to limit those um you know that that if we had a a more i don't know humorous relation to failure yeah if 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 um <laughs> You know, if, if things were sort of understood in a more lighthearted way, like in a yeah. more absurdist way, like that yeah. you know, all of these sort of competitive things are in a way meaningless and, yeah. you know, on some level. Um, and I suppose, you know, that idea that you must change your life, you know, this line from the poem is, is a very interesting exhortation in relation to like theorem in particular, you know, when it... You know, if you say to someone, you must change your life, but you don't tell them how, mm -hmm. you know, it, like, it presents this kind of, uh, almost like the midlife crisis, you know, I'm very interested <laughs> in this as well. Like, you know, what happens when everything becomes sort of unsustainable or you, you come to understand that there's a, a, a real crisis, you know, in your life and the things that you think you ought to do you can no longer do or you no longer mm -hmm. are able to do or, or want to do um yeah what I mean what then happens in a certain sense are you able to carry on mm -hmm. you know, without um illusion in a certain mm -hmm. way you know or, or there are new illusions absolutely new illusions exactly but it's like this fail again fail better in a way but again Todd does a lot of work about like misrecognizing enjoyment and that failure is really what makes you enjoy in a certain sense and that to attain the worst thing possible is to attain the thing that you think you desire because you'd realize that it doesn't have this magical power to make everything better you know and it's I don't think this cliche of like money doesn't make you happy well it's like it almost like confronts you with the your fail, failing desire that like the failure of material things that you know and actually yeah really the enjoyment is in the I was we were talking a little bit earlier I had I had a uh, an interview today and I was like really really nervous and I was speaking to a friend about it and they said you know actually just realize that like the nerves mean that that's that's where the enjoyment is you know that's you living you know that's your like the fact that you know you that's all there is if you got it doesn't really matter it wouldn't make you happy you know it might materially help you but it's really the enjoyment is in the is in the pursuit itself um but that we misrecognize that and see it as sort of um you know painful or, or it is it is in a way painful it's like too much you know it's uh 
but the, the pain and the pleasure are kind of in the same place in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you make me think of my father, who I, I really admire for his uh, ability to have understood this precise point mm -hmm. in, in that he's quite addicted to adrenaline. So yeah. <laughs> he, you know, but he kind of keeps this separate, like he's always engaged in very extreme he used to be a racing driver, a mountain climber, and, and now in his 70s, he's still very um, into running, you know, mm -hmm. triathlons and marathons. And one of the things that he does is run in the dark and he yeah. lives in the countryside. And so this idea of kind of, you know, he, he comes back kind of covered in scratches and, that you know, he can't always see where he's going. It's very dark. And but in a way, it's this is his embrace of this, you know, yeah. the, the adrenaline makes him he enjoys the the feeling, you know, where most people might feel afraid, you know, he mm -hmm. actively welcomes this, um, yeah, this this feeling of, of risk in a certain mm -hmm. way. Or, but, but what I admire about it is his, you know, in, in, in other respects, he's an incredibly gentle and thoughtful and compassionate man. So he's not yeah. in any way, um, you know, engaging in risky or, or, or aggressive behaviour with people around him, but only in relation to his own to yeah. himself and he's managed to kind yeah. of arrange his life in such a way that um the adrenaline is is managed you know and so I think he's understood this point yeah. of enjoyment yeah, yeah no exactly because it's like to, to have these feelings is to be alive and I think it's interesting you were talking about you know um maybe the bourgeois framework which again like I guess is you know the early Freud and this is where I think like a lot of the early Freud got popularized and not like later Freud and obviously like his descendants like Lacan and stuff because obviously the early you know civilization is discontent so you know the bourgeois is just about this certain form of repression and having to formulate yourself in a certain way and like um then on the other side of it there's something better there's a better arrangement but it's like okay yes so maybe a lot of the, the people who are engaged in this sort of like bourgeois framework maybe the, the the suffering or the toxicity to it is the misrecognizing of the enjoyment you know within 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 and the fact as well that like it's such an intransigent thing you know again the Lacan point you know you have a master you know you will have a new master kind of thing or that nothing changes it's like because there's a sort of enjoyment you know that's like painful like a not enjoyed enjoyment and that potentially but just actually people recognizing where their enjoyment lies, then, you know, maybe something better would emerge because you don't have this like death drive repetition. You know, you can actually like, it's like, you know, when you have like French people with the way they eat, you know, it's really annoying. I mean, like, I just have a piece of cheese and I'll enjoy it. That's enough, no more. You know, that it's actually sort of within this sort of like living into the void, which I think is the thing that generates all of this stuff and the enjoyment, the desire, but living into it actually it lowers the stakes of everything and it like the whole death drive and kind of like yeah toxicity and unhappiness lowers and then maybe from a better place we can think of new ways to arrange things I don't know I mean there's obviously like urgent things as well you know on material level but yeah no sure I mean I think I think you know getting what you think you want is never a good idea <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't know I, I mean I think in you know, obviously we're in lockdown, you know, again, and still is, you know, it's almost a year. And, you know, I think there are kind of real, you know, obviously different struggles for everyone and, and you know, the material constraints, as you say. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, but one thing, you know, when the world has sort of become a lot smaller and, and you know, everyone in a sense is not able to plan the future, you know, you're kind of thrown back onto your to yourself in one way or another in certain ways. And, you know, I, you know, especially, I don't know, last month I was really struggling with kind of rumination, you know, kind of the re repetitive thoughts, you know, and it seemed very tied to the fact of being in the same place. And, you know, I obviously I like going outside and every time I went outside, it kind of broke the, the rumination, you know, which somehow was tied to the domestic and um, rumination exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly you know and it's like that kind of very you know exactly the the, the question of repetition and, the, and death drive in that way you know it's kind of what is the pleasure you know in this kind of negative you know repetition of, of you know mm -hmm. horrible thoughts or you know regrets or you know that you're sort of stuck with and just what, why, why am I doing this, <laughs> this yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think also, you know, if anyone, as many people have, I suppose, have had an experience of addiction, 
you know, the kind of rep the repetitive, you know, the desire for repetition, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, you know, it's like the only way human beings can do anything is to sort mm -hmm. of automate themselves, right? To become their yeah. own master, but to be able to be in control of your own um, capacity or your, um, you know, the possibility of you being repetitive, you know, mm -hmm. it's very, very, it's very, very hard to master that kind of auto automative element. You know, yeah. when it gets obviously latched on to something that's kind of self-destructive, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's all about acquiring good habits. <laughs> How does one acquire good habits, you know, as opposed Absolutely. to bad habits? But it's interesting because, like, I think the 12 steps is so interesting. It's interesting because I think you've written about Jordan Peterson in, in your book and, yeah. you know, he's got 12 rules. But the thing that I think is interesting about 12 steps is, like, the step zero, which is the, like, grace acceptance step which I think is like in a way of like encountering the void you know that like you kind of just accept the the like crazy messy like dark universe that we're in and like from like from that basis I just think it's interesting that it seems to be like a technology that seems to work and like without that step maybe it, it wouldn't for people who it's worked for I don't know. There's there's something you said that I really wanted to pick up on, but I think you say so many interesting things that I like. Oh, yes. So I was doing this uh, seminar at the weekend again with, with Todd, and um, he was talking about the difference between a uh, miser and a collector. So yeah. a collector is somebody who, who gathers things, but like actually does it for the sake, the sake of the thing itself, you know, takes pleasure in the oh this prized vinyl thing, you know. So but the the miser is like a toxic accumulator because sort of what they have is empty to them. I think Simone Weil has this quote about like, what does the miser lose when he loses all his money? Because he, he doesn't have it in a sense. It's like not there to him. And so this like capitalism in a way, you know, is this toxic accumulation. Whereas if we were to be able to enjoy, you know, you can still gather things and have things and do things. But if you're able to like enjoy those things for themselves, that, that might like stop the kind of death drive process in a way. Yeah, I mean, again, I just always think of Bataille. It's like, you know, expenditure mm -hmm. is, you know, the problem is not lack, it's excess, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So that, you know, when civilizations deal with excess, you know, when uh, Malinowski goes to the, the islands and, you know, the, the question of the gift, you know, and obviously um, Levo Strauss and, and Girard and many others talk about this, you know, the gift is where you have, where civilizations are kind of giving away their most precious things and, it, you know, and it's heavily ritualized you know, and you give back the same, you know, the thing, and it's, mm -hmm. that this is a way of understanding um, enjoyment as well. Um, yeah. You know, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I know someone who's a kind of miser, I would say, in a technical sense, and I, I think it's brutal. Like, it's such an unpleasant way of being, like, for this person, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like you can see how unhappy they are <laughs> about, you know, they're, they're kind of constantly anxious that, you know, someone wants to take something away from them, but they mm -hmm. never enjoy the thing that they yeah. have either. And that this constant idea of saving, you know, yeah. money or saving, you know, making a saving somehow. Is like, yeah. You know. But I think it's it's interesting, like the precarity thing about capital, like it really, you want to, like it, this, it's, it, it, it thrives off people feeling precarious. I thought it was also, you know, it kind of works on this thing of thinking that nobody else is lacking. Everybody else has abundance apart from you. And this is, I won't go into the rabbit hole of this thing, but I was like looking at it last night. It was so interesting on Instagram. Um, this, there's this big, um, also like, uh, issue uh, around this identity thing and to public, young public figures who have sort of an identity political brand that they have. And one of them does these sort of, um, like infographics <laughs> and like um and like uh uh you know pictures about women and you know women don't need men and I don't owe you anything go get it girl kind of thing um and there was a quote that was written about like you know maybe it's not about um me like you or you feel so lacking in relation to me maybe it's because I'm so abundant and you're so lacking and it was just I just thought it was just interesting that like a lot of these things paint themselves as being like counter to capital and all this kind of stuff but like that's literally the fantasy is that like this person has everything and you don't um yeah. and if we realize that 
just by being a speaking subject within the void of the universe. There is an essential nothing that we all experience. And if that was understood, then that the stakes would be lower and lowered in some sense. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, again, it's this kind of, yeah, um, you know, sort of lightly amusing lap, you know, if, if, it, yeah. if it was like, yes, I'm, I'm rubbish. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Failure and, you know, and yeah, to, to sort of lightly enjoy. I mean, it's almost like a kind of, I don't know, a sort of slapstick comedy or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, like, I, you know, there's something so, um, I don't know, reassuring about being a failure. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. know, and and I I don't know. I just I sort of just love this idea. I think it's so it's so kind, you know, because how mm -hmm. how can you be kind to yourself in a way? Mm -hmm. You know, everyone is so punitive, and yes, I mean these kind of you know rivalrous games. I mean, you know, René mm -hmm. Girard talks about mimetic rivalry, mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and the relationship between Girard and Freud is you know very oppositional right I mean yeah. it's, mm -hmm. it's when we're talking about these kind of theological anthropologies and he's very critical of Freud in many ways and I'm very taken with a lot of what Girard says and, mm -hmm. and what Bataille says and you know so I would I wouldn't necessarily you know count myself as a, a sort of psychoanalytic thinker in a certain sense yeah I, you know there, there are massive tensions there and you know but if if on some level we're kind of um, always emulating each other and there's kind of uh, always a sort of possibility of rivalry and, and competition and the problem is actually on some level our desires are um, more similar than they are different mm -hmm. that's why mm -hmm. you have kind of and so on and you know so even where people are trying to say like you know I'm I'm a leftist and you're a rightist or you know I'm this person and you're this person you know these very very you know distinct and dynamic oppositions um, actually people are often much more much closer um absolutely think they are right and um in any case so yeah something about this um yeah like if if i don't know it seems like a very early stage in the, the understanding of desire like where you think someone has something you want and you mm -hmm. lack it and you know and but to say you know well actually this little lack is is mine you know my melancholy <laughs> You know the thing that is most mine is so is so beautiful. Yeah. You know this. Kind yeah, of absolutely. Furry hamster of unhappiness. You know, and it's like it's your furry hamster. That's so good. No, actually, I'm working on this uh, <laughs> idea at the moment that really like fits in so well. I might have to like refer to you about it. But you know, I think you're like absolutely right. And just to go back to like the gender thing, you know, the the man woman thing. Interestingly, like um, I think it was I've said this like quoted this like a gazillion times so I apologize listeners but like I think it's in the communist manifesto where uh, Marx basically says that like you know wherever the bourgeoisie is in the ascendancy like the, the patriarchy dissolves I can't remember the exact word but it's like a paraphrasing so I just think it's like so interesting that like under this like neoliberal whatever it's like the patriarchy the patriarchy the patriarchy when potentially like when we look 2000 years ago and you're like I'm kind of but like the, the but it's all done in this men it's not even like we can see it, this is invisible structure like like almost the illuminati like behind everything are these men who have all this power and they're they're abundant and not lacking but we women are lacking and it's like but that, that obviously you know there are like again material things you know men don't give birth to children and all those you know factors but like to, to just have like the principal difference between these two things. It's just like, and it's interesting that like a lot of, I just feel like so much of Freud was misunderstood in the 20th century because it was convenient to misunderstand it to, to capital and to like academic careers. <laughs> but like, you know, you know, so, you know, women or like, you know, women doesn't exist for Lacan, but it's like, but everybody is all, is already experiencing this, like lacking nothing. So, to just have the principal thing, the essential thing of men are this, men have everything, women don't. It's like it's far more complicated than that. Oh no, absolutely! You're going to love my book because you know amazing. I'm <laughs> dedicated precisely to this point, <laughs> and it's kind of used okay. to abuse today, right? Yeah, Obviously, yeah. This idea that there's some structure that you can refer to, and that patriarchy must be smashed, and it's you know, and the question of whether men are somehow the the individual bearers of this thing called patriarchy. Yeah. Whereas actually, you know, I mean, I do, I do use Freud um, uh, in this at this point, you know, that really the death of the father and, you know, 
a look at this um, book by Mitterschlick called um, Society Without the Father, which is a very interesting mid 20th century book, which suggests that actually, you know, there is no <laughs> patriarchy and that, um, that, that in fact we live in a kind of sibling rivalry, a society mm -hmm. that men and women are more like brother and sister than they are like father and daughter. And that this, you know, and this maps on, you know, very well as to contemporary capitalism, you know, where, where even at the level of sexual conquest, there's something of a, of a competition, right? This mm -hmm, mm -hmm. idea of reconciliation or intimacy necessarily, but more of a kind of um, oppositional, almost antagonistic um, idea of the sexual encounter. And at the same time, you know, and obviously capitalism, you know, in a way levels the playing field, both at the level of employment, but also of consumption. And I talk about um, the Ladette, you know, in the 90s figure, which, you know, I very much was was part of that um, generational idea mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, relatively negative consequences slightly down the line in terms of <laughs> drink and drug consumption. But, you know, yeah. the, the idea that in a way there's a, there was an equality of hedonism, you know, that mm -hmm. women could be as as hedonistic as men, you know, and uh, that there was no, there's uh, some equal thing in that. and. Um, you know, I, I found that idea very attractive as a teenager, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, so I think, you know, actually there's a kind of absence of patriarchs. I mean, the patriarch, if you think about the Bible, you know, these mm -hmm. figures, they're fathers, but they're also, they're responsible. You know, they're mm -hmm. the ones who take responsibility for mm -hmm. generation and for, um, you know, looking after people. You know, the patriarch yeah. is not someone who simply... I enjoys the spoils of existence, um, but rather, in fact, doesn't enjoy it. So what, he's the person who takes responsibility. And in a way, nobody wants to take responsibility. I think there's an absolute absence of adulthood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know, and, and we can talk about extended adolescence and, and so on. But, you know, we live in a culture that, that absolutely encourages uh, infantile relations mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, to responsibility. Uh, mm -hmm. and so on so yeah I mean I think that you know, it would be good if there was a, a, a yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it be it's um yeah no you're so right like um what was I going to say that the it's almost like to, to even say about responsibility or like you know taking these traditional values about you know that that's toxic masculinity or that that's uh, fascistic or some way or like uh, reactionary but it's it, like uh, so I was in central boarding school when I was seven and the first school I was at was like highly disciplinary and in like a really like horrible way but the thing is I mean I guess this shows that like neither one is like amazing but then actually I then went to the second school the senior school where there was no discipline and it was worse and when they talk about sort of like sexual assaults and stuff like sexual assaults were like obviously it's funny like even 10 15 years ago you just didn't think about it in the terms that they would now but like there was no discipline. And then that meant that there was all sorts of like horrible shenanigans going on. And then the no discipline, I think, was was worse than, than the discipline, personally. And also, I think there's a way of, you know, of having, you know, a parental or adult culture that isn't punitive, you know, but that is, yeah. that is yeah, respectful of, of people as adults. No, I mean, if you can explain to someone why you care for them and what in what ways you're looking out for them or looking after them, you know, then it then it makes sense. You know, I mean, children need looking after. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing as well. Like, I sometimes think that these days there's this thing of like the children are sort of angels who are wiser than wiser than us, yeah, and you get on Twitter this thing they're of idiots. like, you know, I mean, they're idiots. Everyone's an idiot. I mean, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, so I mean, yeah, I mean. It's, I don't know. Everybody is an idiot. I think that's great. I mean, yeah, there's this thing yeah. of like on Twitter, my, my five-year-old wrote this poem. Like, they didn't, but the sort of angelic, the wisdom of little children, you know. And it's like, what? Do, they, they literally can't even speak yet. So like, you know, no. they just they completely can't even control their own going to the loo. You know, what do they know about life? But it's almost like um, this. It was funny. My mum would always use this example. We used to have this house rabbit about how the rabbit was so. Um, disciplined and it only ate what it needed to and if you gave it too much food it would only eat and it was very measured and then it would go away and it would just you know only return when it's hungry and it's like it's because it's not a speaking subject like 
binge eating is a result of being a speaking subject. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's, this yeah. wisdom of children. It's because they're like they're not even human. They haven't graduated to to being a human yet. And it's it's the division that that creates these excesses and these you know sense of lack and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, totally. You know, I think yeah, that kind of generosity and benevolence of the 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 wise adult you know the thoughtful adult but it's but it's somebody who understands all of these things on some level you know mm-hmm. that when a child says I'm a dinosaur you know or <laughs> <laughs> you know that the, the the I mean there is something beautiful and playful mm-hmm. you know, of course yeah. it's amazing it's um you know but you wouldn't kind of look for wisdom in in those things and you wouldn't kind of you know you would try to make clear the difference between play and reality in some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to give that kind of structure. Um, yeah, I mean, and absolutely, it's it's. Do you know the thing is? I I do think that like the material conditions at the moment are keeping people infantilized. Like, how do you graduate to to adulthood when you're burdened with so much debt just for the privilege of going to university? Obviously, that debt question is a really complicated one. But like, you know, I I feel like I'm I like chomping at the bit to be more adults you know like it feels like you know obviously this year those people have returned home but like it just because of because of basically you know extraction of wealth and credit you know as in tech and financialization as a way to as a cope to cover over the fact that capitalism you know but more becomes unequal the more it's you know runs aground it is it is keeping people infantilized because they can't even like start to get on whatever ladder it is of 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 adulthood um but yeah I don't know it's um it's a bit of a depressing time <laughs> yeah. but yeah do you any other thoughts I have some notes here that I I typed up last week about about the movie um I don't know I think I, I passing is such a fascinating character um and the kinds of films that he did, you know, I really, there are people who are making work like this today, um, but it's so hard to persuade people to show it or to, 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 you know, obviously to compete with massive channels and things like that. But I think film is such a, a great medium to explore these subjectival questions in really interesting ways. But yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for coming on and um, look out for Nina's upcoming book, What Do Women Want? What do women want? <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> what do men want? I don't know what women want. I don't know what I want. Well, exactly. Who no, the heck knows? I think a woman actually, writing a book about what men want is, is the joke. Is the joke. But I think this is absolutely true. And like just about that kind of mistaking of like, oh, women are lacking and men have, have the phallus or whatever. But actually, that actually the thing is, it's like Freud was a man on his deathbed saying, what do women want? But also, yeah, the question is, what do men want is equally as valid. And um, one well, other thing I'll say. It's, it's equally as absurd. And, and you know, yeah. one thing to say is that, you know, I mean, Baudrillard says in Seduction, women have never lacked power. You know, like one of the things that is kind of misunderstood is, you know, in if you have a purely kind of representative, you know, representational notion of power, mm-hmm. you don't understand what power is. Absolutely. You know, and and sort of gaining the, you know, the phallus in this stupid system is not winning, right? No, it's not you know, winning. I mean, it's, it's, it's rubbish, you know. I'd much rather seduce a man and get him to do what I want than like do it myself. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's quite, well, yeah. It's not gonna fix anything, but that's one, that's one route. <laughs> mm. No, but the thing is, the point being, it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not like, yeah, and especially historically, you know, in whatever, just examples of like old families and stuff like that, who really was holding whatever. Um, But one thing I was going to say that I find really interesting is, you know, like phallic imagery. I've I've noticed recently, I think that phallic imagery is getting replaced by, by the equivalent for women. Um, And on Instagram, I sent this to my friend who's a psychoanalyst recently, like, um, you know, like sort of like symbolic things where it's like even unconsciously it's phallic imagery, but like that there was this recipe I saw for the stove for like chicken breasts being mm. stuffed with some sauce. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like it was so blatantly like a modern iteration of like the female phallus, and that that's sort of unconsciously indicative of like some form of power under our condition. I don't know. I think it's interesting. I've started to notice it everywhere that like 
<laughs> things are being designed around different shapes, shall we say? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at the same time, like even though we live in a really, really explicit visual culture, mm -hmm. there are certain things like that are just still not really shown. Like to yeah. show a certain lack or to show, yeah. you know, a kind of fully spread, you know, I don't know, absence is not, you know, okay, in certain forms of pornography, there's an attempt, you know, a very, very kind of, you know, obscene explicitness. But in a way, it's like there's still um, a reticence, I think, mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. you know, and again, it's like because it's uh, this fear of nothing. In a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When actually, yeah, just being able to go there is maybe less bad than the consequences of not. I don't know. But yeah, the, it, also in terms of desire and stuff with that question of pornography, that like veils and all this kind of stuff, seduction has a lot to do with. Yeah. The not in and of itself. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And, uh, I will speak at the listeners next episode. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>